0: Good evening fans, Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by Codewriteplay.com. Woo-boom-shakalaka! My mom gave birth in 1985, I was a pac Ghosts barely alive In the cold war, My only blanket was Tetris I played Rampart We're Rampage the world For breakfast The mat was my sanctuary The arcade was my church I thought I was Rastan So for evil I was search
1: Jesus, Blake Hey, how are you? Hey, it's I'm doing okay How's it going?
0: Uh, it's good Let me just uh, Tell my wife That I'm, I'm tall Alright
1: What's your What's your typical day like? <laughs> well, uh, so I I'm blessed enough to work independently and uh, for myself at the moment so things mostly depend on uh, who's watching my son <laughs> so, uh, a <laughs> nice. lot of times i try to get stuff done with him uh running around and that's awesome uh right now he's with his mom and uh, later in the week he'll be with uh, my mother-in-law which is also very nice a lot of work gets done then that's awesome how
0: yeah. long have you been uh operating independently
1: so uh i I did uh, professional commercial software development uh non games for about close to fifteen years, and I uh, sort of went indie uh, a couple of years ago uh, closer to when he was born he's only uh four now okay cool I would love to uh get into a little bit about, I, I would like to get into sort of how you got to the place where you are, where you get to write these cool books and do all of this cool stuff. Definitely want to talk a little bit about each book and, you know, ideally what's, what's in the future for you and, and where you want to go from here. That sound good? All
0: right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just ask whatever you want and I'm happy to answer.
1: So uh, first of all, thanks for, for doing this. I know you're super slammed schedule-wise. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I, I want to ask first of all, what was your education and early career like? I mean, how how early did you know this was the kind of thing you wanted to do? Ooh,
0: the kind of thing I wanted to do, I knew pretty early. I would say that by the time I was in college, I went to school in uh, in Georgetown in Washington D.C., and, mm. and I knew by my sophomore year that I wanted to be a writer. But I had no idea how to uh you know, do that professionally, how to monetize that or even necessarily like what type of writing I wanted to do. I guess I should say at that point I wanted to write the Great American novel um, sort of thing. And then out of college at twenty two I started working, you know, I I got like a quote unquote day job (laughs) but it was a pretty intense day job working I was working at Rockefeller Center trading commodities for Brazilian clients. Wow. There's a financial brokerage called FEMAT, and then was later renamed New Edge. And so, basically, one of the things I really liked about this job was that the market opened very early. This was before it went electronic, so it opened at, like, 7 o'clock.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then I would trade sugar, coffee, soybeans, and other soft commodity derivatives uh, for my clients up until 2.15. And then, uh, you know, usually by 3.30, I was out the door, and I could focus on writing for the rest of the day. So, that was what I did to support myself. And then I ended up doing that for um, seven and a half, like for eight years. And then all that while I was trying to figure out how to make a career writing. And at that point throughout most of my twenties, I was focused on screenwriting. That seemed like the most feasible way to make a career out of writing. Sure. and uh, and yeah and I and I and I enjoyed it to an extent, you know I definitely I definitely enjoyed it. I just definitely didn't enjoy it as much as the stuff I do now. But I worked with my uh, buddy Jonah Toulis, who I had gone to high school with, and uh, we actually we wrote a screenplay called The Flying Scissors, which was a 90 minute, you know like a 90 page mockumentary about competitive rock paper scissors, and then we decided to produce this movie ourselves. In hindsight. I still don't know whether it was a great idea or a terrible
1: idea, but... I, I was wondering where the producing started.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I, I had this job when I was making you know, decent money. At that time, I was living at my grandmother's apartment in New York City because my grandfather had just passed away. So I was saving a lot of money, and I was saving that money for film school, in my mind. And then uh, Jonah and I had written a script that I thought was pretty funny, and he said, let's produce it. And he had, you know, like, I felt like I had more of the writing experience and he had a lot more of the filmmaking experience um, that had over the years, since we still worked together, that sort of merged. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, I never would have came up with the idea to produce it. And at first I remember him saying, like, oh, you know, we'll each put in a few thousand dollars. And I, and I thought, okay, that's fine. That won't really mess up my plans to try to go to film school. But as a lot of these things probably happened, it became a, sort of a money pit and uh, I ended up putting all my money, you know, like, whatever, 40000 forty or $50,000, everything I'd saved over the first two years uh, for film school, I ended up putting that into this movie. And that, like I said, I don't know if it was a terrible idea or a great idea. It doesn't have a super happy ending, but obviously I learned a lot doing it. Um, and then that's really where the producing started. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if 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 you didn't uh, envision yourself heading off to Hollywood forever, yeah, I, I can understand why that would seem like a rough way to uh, lose your resources at that point.
0: Yeah, exactly, and 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 part of that too did you know? I think it's unsurprising, but it bled into the project itself. You know, like I I still to this day think that that project was was pretty fun. You know, as silly as a it's a very silly idea, but at least we I think we did it pretty well. And uh But for a while there, I sort of hated the project because it was a thing that, you know, I took all this money and took all this stress, and we got rejected from every film festival we applied to. So it was like, you know, this very negative thing in our lives. But then after a couple of years, I do feel like uh we were able to get some distance from it and actually try to look at it a little bit more objectively, and that was helpful because – uh, what we decided was that there was a pretty fun movie here. It was not, you know, like The Godfather, but it was a good, chilly <laughs> movie. And uh, and I thought, oh, you know, who would like this? Probably college students. At that point, I wasn't too far out of college. So I contacted uh, Georgetown, like the committee that, you know, put the student activity committee and asked if they would have any interest in uh, screening the movie. And they did. And then I thought, oh, you know, other schools might be interested in this, too. So I ended up contacting, I think, 500 schools. And I think 42 of them said yes. So we got a little college tour out of it. And that was probably the most important lesson that I learned out of it was just contacting people and getting used to being rejected. Um, You know, because what is that, like 458 people said no. But (laughs) um, that was fine because... 42 people said yes. And and I know that might sound like a silly thing, but I do think that was a big deal. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid to put themselves out there, and I certainly was. I hated being told – I hated being rejected, uh, but I got very okay with it as long as it was in the greater service of a project. So that would end up serving me very well with my future book projects because, uh, you know, trying to get people for interviews – Especially when you have no track record, is not the easiest thing. But as long as I was getting some yeses, I didn't really care how many no's I got.
1: Yeah, hearing the word no as a as a creative person is uh, so difficult, and and gaining the ability to do so is so so crucial. Uh, and also, what I right. learned in freelance writing was hearing nothing at all. That was the one that really set me off. I was like, somebody could say something. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, it's a really important distinction. I was actually thinking about that
0: after I made my comment because half of it is no and half of it is just never hearing back and then trying to figure out, should I bug this person again? And then, like, you know, how to interpret silence. And obviously, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like 450 people said no. I bet probably half of them said no and half of them never said anything and never replied to my follow ups. And maybe I didn't even know if I was talking to the right people. But um, yeah. That's that's a you're right. That's a big part of it. It's just the no response.
1: <laughs> and uh, speaking of freelance writing, uh, when when does that kind of work start for you, and, and who have you gotten to do it for?
0: Um, so what happened was I wrote a screenplay with my friend I mentioned earlier, Jonah. It was called "The Sordid Tales of an Evil Tyrannical Ex Dictator." It was a comedy. It was about a uh, dicta- the dictator of a small European country, a wealthy country, sort of we imagine like a Ricky Gervais type dictator. And uh, he gets overthrown, and then he ends up going into, like, the, the witness protection program in the United States and uh, ends up working at the DMV in New Jersey until his life catches up with him. It was very much like an homage to Coming to America and Trading Places and movies like that from the 80s. Sure. Um, and then this was sort of the script that we thought was going to break our careers, and this one was a very good script. I think it was the best one that I've ever written. And then a week or so after we finished writing it, Sasha Baron Cohen announced that he was doing a movie called The Dictator. Oh, yeah. um, and at that point, like, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen had no script or anything like that. It was just an idea. But our, but our script was, like, instantly worthless. And that was very frustrating, but also, like, educational because, I, you know, if I put myself in the shoes of a studio, a movie studio head... I would much rather have like an idea from Sasha Baron Cohen than like a 90 page script from me and Jonah even if it was a very good script. So sure. like I kind of understood you know as frustrating as it was I I wasn't like oh this is so stupid I understood why his script would be or you know his potential script would be more valuable but uh but that was like definitely like a a rock bottom sort of experience and uh and out of that you know I still had my day job and I was and I sort of realized that I was going to always just keep writing, and I was probably going to have to, you know, my day job was probably going to have to become my real job, or at least I'd have to try to find a different job. You know, I probably wasn't going to make a living writing, I was thinking. Um, and so I decided that, you know, whatever I work on going forward, it should be a project that I really, really love, because I'm probably not going to make any money doing it. And then that's what led me to a writing the wars, And, uh, you know, obviously the wonderful irony that was a project that I finally made money on and really did help launch my career. So that's how I got into writing nonfiction. I I had never written any freelance pieces beforehand, uh, which certainly, you know, uh, probably caused trepidation for my publisher and my editor, having never seen anything I've written before. Um, I mean, in terms of Articles because I did I did end up writing a very long and comprehensive book proposal because I had no bylines anywhere, but that was really how I got into it.
1: Okay, so it was it was basically just a, a fantastic pitch uh, that was to Harper Collins, is that right?
0: Yeah, it was to Harper Collins, and and I should also mention that it, it was like I spent about a year. Uh, so basically, we sold the proposal over a year after I had been working with it. So it wasn't just like I came up with this idea and then I wrote up a good pitch. Like it was very much a labor of love to the extent that I guess, you know, by the time, I'm trying to think back exactly, but in January of 2012 was the first time that I met Seth Rogen about the project or, you know, first time I ever met Seth Rogen. Um, Prior to that, I guess for like six months, I had been interviewing people and putting together uh, not a formal proposal, but just sort of like an overview of the project. And then that was what I asked my manager to send to Seth's company. And uh, I never had any expectations that I would hear back from Seth's company, uh, let alone Seth, because they're, you know, they're very famous in the big deal and I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was like a really big turning point when they were interested in meeting. And then, so that happened in January of 2012. At that point, I think I had interviewed like between 50 and hundred people and then over the next year, I continued interviewing people. And so the book proposal went out in November of 2012. And, uh, you know, like I said, it was a comprehensive proposal. I think I included like five or six chapters. I had outlined the whole book. I had listed the hundred or at that point, maybe two, I don't know, the, all the people I interviewed and had relationships with, I you know, was able to quit my job and write full time after that. That was a really big moment. I remember getting the phone call from my – agent and manager while I was at my day job, and I stepped outside, and they gave me the great news that I was going to be able to quit my job and work on this.
1: Wow, you did way more of the work for that book uh, before you had the go-ahead than I thought. You you were neck-deep in that project.
0: Yeah. um, In my case, I felt like I had to be. I mean, I kind of did, because obviously having the endorsement or you know basically that Seth was going to write the forward and more importantly that he was going to make the movie was a big part of it and that only happened because of all the legwork that I did um you know I think that when I first met with Seth in 2012 half of the appeal or more than half of the appeal was the story itself of course that I could sit there for two hours and tell him how this was like the social network of video games but but part of it too was you know why does he even need to involve me and it was because I had these connections with all these people and I knew all the people to speak with. So I had done a lot of the legwork and then also it was because I didn't have bylines at magazines or, or game sites. So I really did need to prove myself that I could write because, you know, I was asking people to give me money and then I would go off and write. So yeah, that was what I did. I, I always still find it surprising that despite what I think was a pretty awesome book proposal and, despite having people involved in the project like Seth Rogen and Scott Rudin that were way more famous and successful than I was, the, uh, I think we sent it out to 25 publishers and 22 of them passed on the book because they said video game books don't sell, mm. um, which I thought was just crazy because part of the reason I wanted to write this book was because there's so few video game books. Um, and so that's always something I think about because I hope that there will be more and more video game books over the years, and then I hope my books have helped make it easier for someone else in my, in my position going forward.
1: I hope so, too, because uh, obviously Console Wars is fantastic reading. For uh, readers that aren't familiar already, Console Wars tells the story of basically Nintendo versus Sega in the 90s, and uh, you know, sort of what, what brought us back from the video game crash and built up to sort of the modern uh, game industry and it's, it mostly features people from, interview-wise, it features a lot of people from Sega. Is that mostly right? Yeah,
0: yeah. and like I said, you know, I, I offhandedly mentioned that it was like the social network of video games, and, and this really is sort of a behind-the-scenes story focused on the, the business people at these companies, even more so than the game designers, which is that's still part of the book. But, but yeah, it's like the story of how Sega went from less than five percent of the market to surpassing nintendo which basically had a monopoly and and it was um more focused on sega than on nintendo which initially maybe was not the plan but that's where i thought the more interesting story was and it was also very hard to get access to nintendo people so it kind of worked out nicely that i had more access to sega people and that was to me the more dramatic story uh because they were the underdogs
1: Having read the book, I I agree. It was such a fascinating thing because so many of us have heard a lot of the sort of a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff from Nintendo. And given the choice, I think a lot of people would have said, I would kind of like to hear that Sega side. And it turned out the story behind that was uh, just as compelling as anybody could have hoped and probably more so. And what I love is that these guys... Are largely still around Twitter and social media, and they still talk (laughs) about this stuff like it's still going on, and they all love it.
0: No, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, the Twitter stuff is awesome as well, but just the fact that you know, for a guy who had never really written nonfiction before and who had never really, I never really interviewed people before, I didn't know what to expect. And um, as much as I, you know, view myself as a as an objective journalist and storyteller, I also was a kid who grew up during the battle between Sega and Nintendo, and I have, like, an emotional, you know, attachment to that era. And so I was kind of nervous going into the book that I would speak with people from Sega and Nintendo, um, and that they would sort of, um, you know, I would look back on this time very fondly, and that they would just sort of say, like, oh, yeah, that was just like any other job, you know, punching the time card, and it would sort of be deflating, because I imagined it was, like, working at, you know, Willie Wonka's chocolate factory and they were just gonna <laughs> say, Oh no, it was just not that impressive. But but I will say that like almost every single person I spoke with, especially the core people who are featured heavily in the book, they all look back on that time as uh, you know, one of the fondest in their lives. So that made it a lot more fun for me <laughs> to work on that it was such an exciting time and that like you're saying, like even nowadays, you know, twenty five, thirty years later they're still you know, happy to talk about this time period and still sort of step into that era. So that was a really enjoyable part of the process.
1: Yeah, after reading the book, I, I went to Twitter and, and found several of these guys just to follow along and see sort of how their their life was now. And if you go find Al Nilsen, for example, he still talks like this is all actively going on. <laughs> like he is 100% <laughs> enthusiasm about this stuff and would talk about it nonstop, which I love. And uh, I, I actually get to interact with uh, Ed Anunziata of uh, Echo the Dolphin yeah, yeah. fame, <laughs> and he's a really fun guy to uh, to know on social media.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, Ed's an awesome guy. Ed Ed's a good example of the developer perspective. Um, you know, he has such a beautiful story, such a passionate story about how he came up with Echo the Dolphin. And that was also part of the joy for me of writing this, uh, not to say that making games today is uh, less joyful uh, or less joyful to write about. Sure. But back then, because games, you know, cost half a million dollars, a million dollars to make, and because they were usually small one, two, or three-man teams, like, it really was, they were, you know, much more visionary sort of products because you could take that gamble and because, uh, you know, you only had a few people working on it. So, so you know, with, with Ed leading Echo the Dolphin, very much his vision and in that case, I think it worked out well. And in other cases, maybe it didn't work out so well. But as, a, as an artist myself and yourself, I'm sure that you appreciate, you know, sort of like author projects, like, you know, ones that still that are like a little bit out there and very much uh, exactly how the creators want. And then you don't see that as much anymore for a lot of understandable reasons. But I did like that a lot about that era of gaming.
1: Absolutely. And so now that the book has been out, it's, uh, it was very successful, and now that the uh, story is in the hands of Seth Rogen, where are we at with, uh, is, did it move to becoming a series now? Where are we at? Oh yeah, that's a good question.
0: So um, when I mentioned that Seth Rogen was involved back in 2012, what had happened was he had a deal with Sony, and we ended up um, selling the film rights to Sony to do uh, a movie. And then over the years, uh, we decided that we thought it would be better as a television series. And uh, when the rights returned to me after the Sony deal, uh, and, you know, Seth still very much wanted to be involved and in, in doing it as a series. So we ended up uh, bringing it to Legendary Pictures. And we finished a deal with them last summer. And uh, right now we are in the process of, you know, negotiating, or I guess meeting with, and then eventually negotiating with distributors to figure out, you know, where the, the show will be produced and aired, and we should know that uh, probably early this summer. And so, we have a a pilot script that was written by Mike Rosolia, our writer, and he's awesome. It's a uh, it's, it's it's kind of surreal to read a, a pilot script based on your book, and <laughs> uh, and also again like from one artist to another, like I'm sure you can understand how that would be like a little bit weird because it's like, you know, my story, but it's also not even my story. It's a true story, and then it's got, you know, Mike's story, but I, I couldn't be happier with what he turned out, and I swear I'm not just saying that. Like, it's really an amazing job. I feel like it has his voice, but it also has my voice in there too, like, but and more, more so I just mean I feel like it captures, it authentically captures the story, which I feel like I, I did, or at least that was always my goal.
1: It's going to be so much fun to watch, especially for anybody who's read the book and sort of followed along uh, with your career. I I think that's going to be a really awesome uh, thing to see go live wherever it does. That's going to be cool. Thank you. So at at this point uh, now, when, when and how do you decide to go from here to tell the story of uh, basically the past and present of virtual reality?
0: (laughs) Oh, what a decision that was, Uh, which I, which was, I'm, we'll get into it in a moment why it turned out very different than I expected. Though I'm, I'm obviously very happy that I made that decision. <laughs>
1: um,
0: so, okay, so the, so Council Wars came out in May of 2014, and uh, at that point, I distinctly remember having a conversation with my manager and saying that I thought it was pretty sad. I would never write a book as good as Council Wars, and he said, "Oh no, you know you'll keep getting better at writing." And I said, "Yes, but I never think I'm. Gonna, I don't think I'm ever going to find a book." It's as culturally important, as interesting, and has so many larger-than-life characters and such an intersection of technology and uh, pop culture and business and all these things. Sure. And I guess it will remain to be seen whether the new book, History of the Future, uh, you know, is considered among those ranks. I, I, I definitely think that the book turned out as, as well as Council Wars. So I, I, but, uh, but so what happened was around that time, uh, I guess initially I, th- I was planning to maybe write a book about electronic arts. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, the early years of EA especially was were very fascinating to me, and also I'm a, a big sports gaming fan, so EA Sports was very fascinating to me. Um, I was also considering maybe writing a book about Rovio, the makers of Angry Birds. And uh, But then during during that time, I ended up trying one of Oculus's DK1 headsets at the uh, E3 trade show, and uh, and I was really just blown away by virtual reality. And, you know, it wasn't like I immediately thought, oh, I'm going to write a book about VR, but it made me very interested in VR. And uh, for any of the writing I do, I really do need to have um, very strong access to tell the kinds of stories that I want to tell. Because to me, um, you know, as is obvious from both of my books or anything I've written, I really just love character-driven stories. I I often talk about how, everything I write, I want to make sure that my grandmother could enjoy. So I need to figure out a hook into the story beyond just the technology or beyond the content itself. And then learning about Palmer Luckey and the founding of Oculus and how he was this 19 year old kid back in 2012 and how he founded this company and then how less than two years later, they sold to Facebook for $3 billion. Um, and then all of that combined with my own personal passion for virtual reality um, really made for a good combination but like I said, access, access is usually important, and for me it's critical. And so it took me like a year and a half to get the access I wanted from Oculus and Facebook, which started in February of 2016, one month before the launch of their first consumer product, the Oculus Rift. And so at that point, they were about to launch this product that they believed was going to change gaming forever. I think, it, I think we can all agree it didn't. <laughs> not yet, though, though their new headset, Oculus Quest, is awesome. But anyway, uh, n- needless to say, the launch, that, that whole year from a business standpoint, was not what Oculus expected. And then from a personnel standpoint, it was definitely not what they expected. And uh, midway through my writing the book, uh, Palmer Luckey, the founder of Oculus, got fired. And so that turned into a whole other thing. So it's interesting in a lot of ways, this new book. But I think, you know, one of the most obvious was just the difference between writing a book about something that happened 20 years ago, and a book about something that was happening as I was writing it. Uh, (laughs) And, of course, it turned out very different than I would have expected. But it was already just a challenge in general, to keep up with the, you know, ongoing virtual reality news before any of that stuff happened.
1: Right. And and, uh, it's, it's funny because you, you get so deep in your projects and that definitely comes out in your reading. I mean, you were just right in there as if you had gone back in a time machine and captured what happened around <laughs> you. Uh, Thank so, you. <laughs> and, and so when I heard that basically you were in the middle of it, when Palmer lucky did get dismissed, I thought, Oh my God, that must be, that must be rocking his world as he works on this project because you know, you, you are in the middle of it and you have uh I'm sure at that point you have access to all kinds of people and uh, we're hearing about controversial stuff in the news a while back and you're, you're seeing it right in your face. So, I mean, how how did you even get through that to finish the book at that point?
0: (laughs) I mean, just hearing you ask the question brings back a lot of uh, memories and raw emotion. The honest answer is just that I I had to. Um, (laughs) And also, and and I will also say that like, uh, I've been asked over the years, if i have if i have any interest in writing fiction or going back to writing fiction and screenplays and and of course as a storyteller i'm always interested in a good story but i often tell people that i don't think i could finish a fiction project anymore because having worked in nonfiction and you know dealing with real people and uh, you know i feel like an obligation to them to finish the work and yeah. and i think that's a large part of the answer to your question is you know, to me, Palmer Lucky wasn't just like uh, a character in media articles. He was like someone who I knew uh, very well and I knew what he was going through and I knew and I believed it or I didn't know I believed it was very important to get the true story out there. I also saw the other side of what was being reported, you know, just for listeners to someone understand what we're talking about. So in September of 2016, September twenty second, twenty sixteen, this was like six months before uh sorry, this was like six weeks before the US presidential election here, uh, an article came out with the headline uh talking about Palmer, and the headline was Facebook billionaire secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And the uh insinuation was that every or that, you know, so many of the terrible memes that you had seen online over the past election season, particularly like the racist memes, the hateful memes. Misogynistic, anti-Semitic, all that stuff. That Palmer Lucky was funding a group that was producing these memes, uh, and that turned out to not be true at all. But what was true was that Palmer was, and I believe still is, a, a Donald Trump supporter. The story was misreported over and over over the course of 24 and 48 hours, and like you said, uh, you know, I had a front row seat to this. There was, uh, you know, articles that was, you know, basically Palmer Lucky was. <laughs> like uh, no longer seen uh, at events. And he was kind of, you know, he was always a very uh, frequent social media user and he didn't say anything publicly for several months. But I was talking to him every day, so I knew exactly what was going on And it's like, Or I shouldn't say exactly, because there were certain things that he couldn't talk to me about for, I later came to realize, legal reasons. But um, but I had a very good idea of what was going on in his life and what he was going through and um, and what had actually happened. And so, uh, it was uh, a unique experience. And then I would say that I was probably as surprised as he was that he ended up getting fired as a result of all of this. And uh, it, you know, it, it was it was a it was a very I think it was a sad thing because it had his the reasons why he was fired. Well, first of all, when he was fired, they never said he was fired. They said that he exited the company, and because Palmer was legally not allowed to say anything otherwise there was just sort of this weird situation where, um, you know, it wasn't like he resigned and it wasn't like he fired, he was fired apparently. Um, so that was kind of odd, but, you know, it was sad that his dismissal had nothing to do with the virtual reality or with business, you know, well, at least the business of technology. Uh, they, they might make a claim that had, that, that his political affiliation disrupted business. I think that's pretty obviously not true, but, but uh, but yeah, it was not what I expected the book to be. It was also, <laughs> uh, I admit, like challenging for me because, like I said, Palmer was and I believe still was a Trump supporter, and I'm very much not a Trump supporter. But my job was to accurately uh, report what happened. So, uh, I guess some people see my reporting as being sympathetic to him, um, and I guess like I, I don't know if sympathetic's the right word, but it definitely was correcting an inaccurate story that I think at the end of the day a lot of people in the media thought that Palmer being a Trump supporter was a crime in itself, and I had to report it in a way where that was not the case, and that, nor do I believe that's the case. I don't think that supporting uh, a candidate that I dislike even as strongly as Trump makes you a bad person. I think everyone has their own reasons for supporting a candidate, and most of them are pretty valid and understandable.
1: Mm-hmm. And what part of what makes this so interesting as a result is that the history of the future really starts with the story of palmer lucky almost since childhood and certainly <laughs> his his formative years and so you, you sort of get invested in his story just as a, a byproduct of reading the book and to see such a, a fantastic technical story take off. And then to <laughs> to be in the middle of this while he's basically dismissed over, like you said, the support of one candidate over another, uh, certainly at a time when I don't think a lot of the nation really knew uh, as much about either candidate as we thought, uh, certainly compared right. to now it's it's tough to see that happen and it's also tough to see it as a result what i would say seems as a result of facebook acquiring oculus i don't know that that would have gone the same way had that not taken place uh you know you, you tell me right no i mean for, these are really
0: like i'm really glad that you are saying that i'm glad that you interpret that way and i also, i think that also goes back to your question of like how was i able to get through it and it was because in part because i I knew Palmer really well. I have very complex feelings about him, uh, you know, positive and negative, but he was always a good source to, to work with, To you know, whatever. As long as he was legally allowed to talk about something, he was always very honest with me, and I appreciated that. And so part of the reason that I was so committed to doing this and why I ended up taking an additional two years to finish the book was because, I, I, like I said, I know the people involved. I thought it was really important to get the story accurate. And then also, like what you're saying, you know, have you ever seen the, the movie Million Dollar Baby by chance?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so that was kind of how I envisioned this, where spoiler alert for the next 20 seconds for anyone who hasn't seen Million Dollar Baby, but, you know, it's a movie that for the first 90% was about female boxing. And the last 10% after Hillary Swank's character gets injured, it's about euthanasia and the right, right to uh, end one's own life. And and like what you were saying, like, you know, it starts off as one story and it becomes something else. And to me, that was a really great way to explore political discrimination in Silicon Valley and, and just the national sentiment um, about Trump, or at least with the, you know, how liberals felt about Trump, um, myself generally included, because it was not what the book was actually about. You know, you sort of, you walked into it in this very organic way. And I feel like it gives you um, you know, so it's, it's a chance to actually explore these things with a much more open mind than if I said, hey, let me tell you a story about a Trump supporter who was treated unfairly. Most people who don't like Trump would just sort of roll their eyes. Um, and I honestly probably would have done the same had I not <laughs> reported on this book. But, you know, like you were saying, I, obviously, the Facebook acquisition uh, did change things a lot. Uh, but whether or not this would have played out the same way, whether Oculus had been acquired um, I think it's easy to say it wouldn't, but I kind of think it would have because I kind of just feel like the sentiment that got Palmer fired was a very much just a general Silicon Valley bubble sentiment. So I should caveat and say that Oculus was located in Southern California, so they weren't actually located in Silicon Valley. But I still feel like it was kind of indicative of the fact. Like, I mean, like I remember in the aftermath of, those articles about palmer in september 2016 people were asking developers if they were still going to develop for oculus and i think you know a lot, that some of them put out some uh, non-committal sort of press statements explaining that they were committed to diversity and things that were unrelated, <laughs> unrelated <laughs> to this but like the fact they had that they felt compelled to put out statements is a sign to me that this was going to be uh, a, a sort of a the fallout would probably be similar whether it was Silicon Valley proper or whether it was just going to be a general tech gaming thing. And I, and I always found it really kind of awesome. I mean, awesome in a sad way because this whole thing to me is very sad. It's like, a, you know, it's really just a failure of, of the media, in my opinion. And also, like I said, uh, you know, a tale of political discrimination, which in this case was sort of, you know, discriminating against people who are not like me, but I still find that to be morally wrong. But the funny thing to me is that one of the three game developers, or two or three game developers, I guess it was three, uh, the night that this happened, three small um, game developers said that they were not going to to produce content for Oculus until Palmer was fired. Uh, one of those companies, the first one, I believe, was Scruda Games. I'm uh, not sure whether Scruda Games has ever ended up producing a game in virtual reality. I, I don't know if they made a the game or not, but I really admired the fact that a week after this happened, they publicly um, reversed their position because they realized, as I, like, as I did doing my research, that what was reported was not true. You know, right. they said that there was no memes and that it's, it looked like it was just one billboard. And I kind of just, like, I really admire that because, you know, I, to me, like, that should be a commonplace thing. If, you say, if, you, if you're wrong about something, you should admit it and, and change your mind. But the fact that Scrooge Games was willing to do that, but that no one in the media, even to this day, I, I mean, I guess a couple of sites have, but like like the ones who reported the story and who created this false narrative, they should be the ones to either apologize or at least correct their position, and they still haven't. So I really admire the small indie developer for you know at least having the integrity to admit that they were wrong or that they had been misled. I,
1: I think that's exactly the right uh, sentiment because... Like like you say, I, I saw a lot of major outlets cover this stuff, and it it seemed very different from what uh, I I came away with uh, in interactions with you and and looking at the material in the book, and as as a fairly independent person, and that's easier some days than others, but. I certainly have this desire to see, uh, basically, the truth win out and let let people decide on issues based on what's actually happening. And they can't do that if no one's willing to tell the full story. And so I I think that people like yourself at the forefront of this, albeit you know perhaps unintentionally, <laughs> and uh, right. being willing to suspend your your own uh, natural instincts about an issue to make sure that we all hear. Everything that we need to hear. I, I think that's crucial. And for that reason, I think you were the right person to be there at the right time. Uh, it, it actually struck the same kind of chord with me that I, I felt when I heard uh, Joe Rogan talking to Tim Poole, for example, about the, the Twitter management. I don't know if you saw that whole thing recently. But uh, it seemed like it was a very similar thing. Temple uh, claiming to be a a longstanding liberal guy, uh, independent journalist, and and he's run into his own problems with Twitter. And then Twitter saying, like, uh, we don't have a bias and we treat everyone the same. (laughs) Coming up with example after example of Twitter, not treating people the same and them going like either they're allowing something according to their own bias to happen and saying, oh, hey, we don't get it right all the time. Or if someone brings up an opposing (laughs) viewpoint, they go, no, that was targeted harassment and a clear violation of our terms. And it's just this very different narrative. You can sort of flip on and off like a switch. But I I think this is what we need, these people uh, sort of clinging to objectivity and saying, here's what's actually going on. Now, let's decide whether or not we want things to go this way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I followed loosely with the Tim Cool stuff. And then I also saw that, you know, Jack Dorsey was on Joe's show a couple times. I think once with Tim there. So I'm not. I, I haven't listened to all the hours, but I'm somewhat familiar with the situation.
1: It is like a five-hour show to your to your credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is look. This is what happened. This is how the story
0: played out. So uh, I, I'm sure that I have a vested interest in convincing myself that I'm glad that I was the one who was there, or that you know, it, you know, at least even though it's supposed what I wanted to happen, at least the silver lining is that. I feel like I got to report it inaccurately. But what you're saying about you just want like an objective voice. And I, I'm i sure that honestly there were seemingly subjective conservative voices that probably had some good objective points that maybe people like you and I were not listening to. But then when it came from people like Tim Poole and I, who actually might have a subjective liberal perspective and were, and were saying these things, then it does uh, you know, get more people to notice that there is a problem. And, and there is a problem. There's very obviously a problem. Uh, I mean, for me, one of the moments when I started to realize it was a very non-dramatic moment, but it was like me just talking with someone on Twitter and they were, you know, a, a hardcore Democrat. And I asked them what position and they were talking about how, you know, Republicans are evil and have all these evil positions and then I said, all right, well, just name, name, like name one position that conservatives or Republicans have that you disagree with, or maybe you agree with whatever the name, one position that you, that you might not like, but that you will acknowledge is like not evil and not wrong. And they couldn't <laughs> come up with anything. And that's so oh. crazy because I, you know, it should, it's, it should be like, uh, almost all of them. Like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pro-choice, but I understand, I believe like why someone would be pro-life. I, I, I would maybe try to persuade them otherwise, but I but I don't think they're wrong. I, I think I might be wrong. Who knows? But to think that, like, every position that one side holds is is actually wrong and detrimental and evil, it's a lot easier to understand the mindset of why you would discriminate against that side because you actually think that you're fighting the good fight. But you know what? That's how exactly how the other side thinks. So you can't do that. You can't yeah. just assume that your side is correct and then, you know, use that as a license to discriminate against and say that, you know, you're not discriminating against because you're just doing the right thing. Um, so it's it's a real problem. I, I actually, I'm not an expert on this. So this is like purely just anecdotal, but it does seem like Twitter actually handles it better than, than Facebook in my opinion. Like, at least I, I admire that Jack went on Joe's show, even if he had a lawyer there and couldn't answer a ton of questions, but like, I feel like Twitter's trying to learn and trying to get better, whereas Facebook has um, clamped down in a way that I find really discouraging.
1: I I think I would agree with that. Um, And and what stands out to me is that despite all of these, uh, this sort of hard, hard turn your uh, experience went with writing this book. I still do think that the story of like the rise and prominence of VR was captured very well in the history of the future. (laughs) And I, and I I know the right people are going to see that and get exactly what they want out of it, despite everything. And so I think mission accomplished Um, what I, what I think was (laughs) certainly, and what I what I think was not too, uh, something that helped was that when this book came out, I, if you look at media appearances by uh, Blake J. Harris, they looked for console wars much different than they looked after the history of the <laughs> future. I mean, everyone wanted to talk about console wars, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but it certainly looked like a lot of those people dropped out after the history of the future like i was able to find i had no problem seeing your fox news appearances fox news <laughs> business uh, a lot of independent outlets but you know you weren't exactly on cnn <laughs> but uh no
0: you're totally right i mean look here here's the simplest way to put it and i i genuinely believe i am and i genuinely try to be very humble because like i spent the first half of this call talking about it, i spent you know my entire 20s trading commodities, so I look at everyday writing as like a gift, and I know how lucky I am, and, and I know how much luck factored in. But, but the fact is that Tom Awards is the all-time best-selling video game book by far. It's sold over 100,000 copies, translated into a dozen languages or whatever, and like you said, it was covered by every single media outlet in the gaming and tech space, mainstream gaming and tech space, and the, the new book, there has been Literally zero reviews of the book anywhere, let alone you know not just tech and gaming, but there's not even like a Publishers Weekly or New York Times or anything. Um, And and the and the book has been mentioned uh, in VentureBeat. Actually, Dean Takahashi of VentureBeat did two articles, an interview with me, and he came to a book signing. Um, But aside from that, there is nothing in uh, you know the mainstream tech or gaming sites, and so. Uh, you know, I'll leave it to your audience to decide uh, why that is, you know, right. what's the difference between these two books, but it's it's definitely a little surprising to me. And I will say given that the the final portion of the book focuses a lot on how the media got the Palmer situation wrong, I did not go into this with my eyes closed. I actually expected that you know, that, that I wasn't going to get the same reception as counselors, but what I expected was uh, negative reactions from the media or reactions, exp- you know, explaining why they believe that they stole. reported accurately. What I didn't expect was nothing at all. Right. Um, so that was definitely the big surprise. And, and, you know, and the, and the, the funny thing is I think part of like, you know, like, like just look at you, you're, you're basically saying regarding the Palmer situation that like, you're just an outside observer to this and all you want to know is the truth. Like you don't really care about the political aspect one way or the you just want to actually know what happened. Right. And I believe that 90 plus percent of people feel the exact same way as you. I know that I certainly do as a, as a reader when it's not about subjects that I'm an expert in. And, and I don't think the media feels the same way. I think they feel compelled to deliver a very skewed partisan perspective. And this is all a long windup of saying, that that uh, you know the, the the book has not been covered by any of the mainstream tech or gaming press, but the book has sold better than Console Wars has to this point. So readers are still finding the book. Uh, in large part, I owe a, a, a debt of thanks to Glenn Beck, who is somebody that I never thought I would owe a thanks <laughs> to for anything. Right. But but I guess the point is like as long as it's getting to the people and that's definitely a challenge because uh, without you know coverage, it is hard to get it out to people who are unaware that the book is out there, but for people who are reading it, they are definitely spreading the word they're buying it as gifts. And like, it's, it's very odd to me because I think like on the one hand uh, it says, it says something that the media has not covered the book. And on the other hand, it says something that the book has sold better than the first book. Um, <laughs> so I don't I mean I guess I, as a writer I should know what it says and I unfortunately don't but but it's been a interesting experience to say the least and and I will say that i'm I'm very happy with the book you know like um, I, uh, as a as a present as author um, I would love for everything I write to sell a million copies but there is also just a creative artistic side and I feel fully satisfied in the actual book that I produce you know like I feel like i did a, a ton of research, I feel like I was able to tell the story of the rise of Oculus and this this great sort of how-to guide for any entrepreneur out there. And then it also does swerve into this whole political social media territory that we're talking about. Um, and, I'm, and I'm really happy with how I was able to balance that, though um, so it has obviously created a bit of a marketing challenge.
1: so this all begs the question where do you go from here what do you try to do after an experience like this
0: (laughs) i mean run away as far as possible no (laughs) hide yeah yeah no uh the next i'm you know i'm gonna write another book and the next book that i'm gonna write about has nothing to do with technology or gaming uh which is (laughs) on the one hand i feel like oh That's a good thing because of the reception I got, but it's not like I I am running away. I was always planning to write this book next. Um, And like I said, it's really inspiring as an author that, that readers are still finding and buying the book, even without the media, the traditional media coverage. Um, And so the next book I'm going to write is about the first three Americans to open a hotel in Tahiti back in the 1960s and sort of the Tahitian hotel empire that they built. So that's what I'll be doing, but I still do love, uh, you know, gaming stories and I will be, uh, you know, looking to tell shorter form, still long form versions of stories, but, uh, but I've, you know, I, I don't, I definitely don't want to step too far away from gaming because I love writing about gaming. And I think that not enough about gaming is being written though. It actually, I believe has increased significantly in the five years since I wrote console wars, which is awesome
1: and and as a reader of gaming books i can tell you we're we're happy to have you on our side and uh, i hope you do uh, <laughs> i i would read a book from you about other topics just because of how much i like the the writing style but i will also look forward to you uh, returning for the next gaming project when it comes up thank you uh, thank t- you i appreciate it. tell me where uh, listeners can can find you and follow along with your work and uh, hopefully check out these books
0: Sure. So I have a website, uh, BlakeJHarris.com. That's all one word and just the letter J, BlakeJHarris.com. And the most important thing that you'll get there is excerpts from my books because I always really want to make sure that if someone's going to buy a book and, you know, invest uh, $12 or $15 or whatever the books cost, that, you know, you know what you're getting into. Um, so there's excerpts on there. And then you can find me on Twitter at BlakeJHarrisNYC. And I'm uh, pretty compulsive about receiving to people, so if you have a question or if you have um, some negative things to say to me, whatever you've got, uh, I'll, I'll probably respond to you, and uh, I'll do so cheerfully. <laughs> but yeah, Blake J. Harris, NYC, on Twitter.
1: And uh, just for fun, go go on Blake's website and look at his uh, Tucker Carlson appearance, and uh, <laughs> ju- just for a laugh, uh, count the seconds that pass from the time he says he was a Clinton supporter to the end of the segment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it was about five. I've had uh, I've also had people start to say that like I'm speaking at an event and people so they're going to boycott the event if I'm allowed to speak there because oh. I appeared on Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson and like one that's just crazy to me because I am still a liberal. I also feel like I I unlike Tim Poole to a degree I feel like I practice very non confrontational journalism. Like I'm not I don't like picking fights online or anything like that. And then, two, as we discussed, like, those are the only people who have been willing to have me. So after spending three and a half years on a book, I'd be an idiot not to take advantage of the opportunity to speak to audiences that might be interested in this book. But uh, I guess we live in very polarizing times, and so I appreciate <laughs> you having me on your show to have uh, an awesome conversation. Yeah, so
1: I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, too. I, I think we are uh, a lot alike. I happen to know that objectivity is the fastest way to make enemies on all sides. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is true. So, but this has been awesome and refreshing to see, and uh, I'm a fan of your work, and I, I know that uh, whatever you do next will be awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. Take care. Hey, I want to thank Blake J. Harris again. I knew he was going to be awesome, and he did not disappoint. If you guys didn't know, this was the last show of Season 2. We will be back with Season 3 in September. More interviews, more cool things. I will be uh, working on a book and a game during the summer uh, i hope you guys do some really cool projects too and i hope you get in touch about what you're doing i know i will be putting up all kinds of stuff uh throughout those months that we're off i'll be active at patreon.com slash code where we have a community of project focused people who are learning things together sharing ideas and i'm uh basically making myself available to those uh patrons in any way that i can we will be doing stuff on coderightplay.com you won't be hung out to dry if you're not in the Patreon group at all uh, everything makes it to right Play eventually I want to thank all of you for listening this season I want to thank the people who helped made the show possible uh, Tim Kitzrow did an amazing job uh, recording our voiceovers for the intro while he was busy doing work for Rage 2 so that was incredible thank you to Time Time Wraps on SoundCloud your music's awesome I love having it part of the show Thank you again for that. Basically, everybody's been along for this journey. I appreciate you guys so much. I wouldn't have it any other way. So please come back for season three. I'll be around. Uh, get in touch on Twitter, social media. Check out codereplay.com and uh, let's let's look forward to cool things ahead. Thank you so much again. You guys take care. Talk to you soon.